2: Hi, and welcome to New Books in Drugs, Addiction, and Recovery, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Emily Dufton, and today I'm talking to Kenneth Anderson, author of Strychnine and Gold, a two-volume history of the untold story of addiction treatment in the United States. Anderson knows what he's talking about when he discusses substance use and treatment. He holds multiple master's degrees, including one in psychology and substance use disorders, and has worked in the field of addiction treatment for over 20 years. He's also the founder and CEO of the HAMS Harm Reduction Network, the first worldwide harm reduction-based support group specifically for people who drink alcohol. The author of two previous books about alcohol harm reduction, Anderson is a regular presenter at the National Harm Reduction Conference and has been a guest speaker at the Harlem Hospital Harm Reduction Program, the New School for Social Research, my alma mater, NYU, and the Drug Policy Conference, among other venues.
1: Ken, welcome to the show. Well, it's great to be here.
2: So happy to have you. So before we get into uh, strychnine and gold, I'd like to ask you a little bit about yourself. So who are you? How did you get into this field and what drew you to working in harm reduction?
1: Um, how I got into this field? Oh, I can probably start uh, in the mid 1990s when I checked myself into a rehab program because um, I'd started drinking really a lot. Um, I was, I just finished my first year of uh, my master's program and summer vacation hit and I was unemployed and had no classes and was suffering from depression and started drinking day and night. And after about eight days, I was so sick, I said that something has to stop this. Mm -hmm. So I said, um... I said you know I said to the county Hennepin County uh find me a program but don't give me a 12 step program cuz I know I can't stand that and they hooked me up with a place uh called Cedar Ridge still in operation uh up in Stillwater Minnesota it's not too bad it's kind of half 12 step half cognitive behavior role um they call their program health realization And the idea is that you were born healthy and you want to get back to that Mm. instead of the AA idea that you were born sick, that you have this disease and it's all about being sick. So uh, it's not too bad of an idea. It's kind of okay. Um, So the half 12 step uh, aspect of the program was pretty awful, but. That's uh, my first encounter with this industry. Mm -hmm. Um, Then later, um, well, as I said in my bio, I was uh, online director for moderation management. I was uh, trying to uh, use that to control my drinking. Um, My personal plan was a harm reduction plan. I would drink to intoxication safely at home one day per week. Um, abstain the other six days, which was better than the pattern I'd been going at, which was, uh, this is about year 2000 now, which was, you know, drink four days a week um, and get intoxicated four days a week. That was just screwing things up. So I was involved with moderation management. That's uh, the first time I heard the term harm reduction. Um, someone said, what you're doing is not moderation. It's harm reduction. And I said, well, that's a fascinating idea. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to learn more about that. I started volunteering in needle exchange programs in uh, the old Access Works needle exchange in Minneapolis. Uh, It's not in operation anymore. They ran out of funding. Um, But uh, that was just one of the most amazing experiences I've ever had in my life. It's a complete turnaround of your brain on everything that you thought was true i mean because you encourage every positive change Uh, when people come in to turn in used needles or even just to pick up clean needles even if they don't have any to turn in you just say thank you you're doing a really good thing by using clean needles and please come back anytime and we've got more free needles for you so thank you you're doing a good thing Not, um, do you want to get into treatment? Uh, you look bad. Uh, you know, nothing coercive, nothing, but actually nothing but total love for the people who use drugs and total positivity and no intent to say, you know, we need to have these people change down the road. People change when they're willing to change
2: it's interesting because it's a complete turnaround for you too right it's a complete turnaround at least as a career uh, not only was it sort of like a mentally you know reconfiguration of how you think about drug use but it was actually a complete turnaround for your for your work as well right weren't you studying linguistics during this masters and then you uh, transferred your your focus to actually studying harm reduction so it was a change for you as far as your life path
1: yeah i finished uh, my masters in linguistics uh, about 1998. Um, I didn't really have a way to fund a PhD right then, so I was working for the public library for a while, but uh, then I started volunteering in the needle exchange program, and uh, you know, it just totally blew my mind completely, uh, to use a a nice 1960s phrase. I was just reading about synodon, so somehow my... uh, Mind is back in the 1960s. Yeah, you're back. Hey,
2: nothing wrong with that. I live in the 1970s in my brain. Um, well, that's fascinating. So, what what made you decide to start writing about it? I mean, this is your this is your third book, and this is a series of books, correct? What What transformed you into an author?
1: Well, let's see. Um, when I was with Moderation Management, I was doing this online. I became their director of online services for several years and uh, all these great concepts that I was learning in the needle exchange programs, I kept introducing into the online groups and there was this whole uh, cadre of uh, harm reductionists uh, in moderation management that were, you know, creating harm reduction plans, uh, working with them and being very successful and then about 2006, Uh, We got a new executive director who said, well, this is a moderation program. We don't have any room for harm reduction. Um, If you don't follow our moderate drinking guidelines, you should leave and go to AA. And you harm reduction people are not welcome here anymore. (laughs) Mm. So we said, okay, bye. We'll go start our own group. So, yeah, we kind of split in 2006. Uh, we got officially organized in January of 2007, put up the first version of the website, got uh, incorporated in August 2007, got the 501c3. I think that was November 2007. We got a really quick decision. They must have said, look at our bylaws and said, these guys will never make any money. We can just push them on through.
2: <laughs> Are you still in uh, Minneapolis at this
1: time? Um, no, I was in New York City then. Okay. Um, I moved to New York City about 2004. Okay. Uh, yeah, I think it was, yeah, about then. Um, so, I And was... is
2: this one of the first alcohol harm reduction groups in New York at the time?
1: Uh this is the only alcohol harm reduction support group in the world, period.
2: Oh well then probably the first in New York then too, isn't it? That yes, makes sense. <laughs> It was
1: by, by logical definition there. Uh, yeah, it is still the only one in the world um that is based on the principles of harm reduction. There are other alcohol harm reduction initiatives um in the world and in the United States. Um One of the better known ones is the uh, wet housing program in Seattle, Washington, which has had a great deal of success. Um, You know, they said, um, well, the one argument was it's costing a huge amount of money uh, to have these homeless people pass out drunk and get taken to the ER or to detox programs. I mean, it's really expensive. And why don't we just house them and let them drink? Because, you know, if we try to house them and say, you're not allowed to drink, they just get kicked out or leave because Mm -hmm. they don't want that. Um, So what happened when they housed people and said, okay, drink all you want? um, The amount they drank started uh, being reduced drastically. They started cutting back because, Mm. well... When you're living on the street, if you buy a bottle of booze, you have to drink the whole thing, or otherwise you're going to pass out and somebody's going to steal it. So, right. you know, you don't really have a lot of options. Once you're stabilized in housing, you know, you can start saying, well, I don't have to chug this whole bottle down now. I can take it easy. I could put and, it in
2: my fridge because I have a fridge, right? Yeah.
1: And, you know, I've uh, talked to uh, some of the people uh, there via skype actually um and you know they'll say things like well some days i want to go to the library and you know use the computers or read books or learn things so some days i don't drink so and you know and you know they start taking taking on others just you know just it's just automatic if you house people um they'll get better the yeah
2: yeah <laughs> Right, housing is healing. Absolutely, uh, that's amazing. So, your first two books were specifically about a lot of the concepts um, that your group uh, has, you know, sort of formed. Right, it's about harm reduction in terms of alcohol use. Is this book "Strict Nine and Gold" the first time you've descended into the history of addiction treatment?
1: It's the first time I've written about it uh, to any extent um i published a bunch of articles on various uh online um online magazines is the correct term for them or pff, online places mm-hmm. um i are you familiar with filter mm-hmm. yeah i published a couple things on filter uh will godfrey had two things before filter he had substance.com and he had the influence and I published a bunch of articles on those. Mm-hmm. I also wrote for ProTalk for Rehabs.com, uh, mainly because they paid money. And because they let me publish anything. I was surprising. I published some of the most radical things that they've... I'd submit some of the most radical things they ever saw. And they just publish them and pay me for them. So that was cool. <laughs> <laughs>
2: it is nice to get paid from time to time i agree uh <laughs> well so tell us about the title of this book right um the full title let me grab it yeah is strict and gold volume one part one and volume one part two of the untold history of addiction treatment in the united states now i m- imagine that most people probably know what gold is. But what is strychnine and what do these two substances have to do with addiction treatment?
1: Well, I think most people know strychnine is a poison. Most people have read Agatha Christie or uh, they've had gophers in their backyard and they've poisoned them with strychnine. Um, Yeah, strychnine is a poison. Uh, Most medicines are poisons. Uh, As Paracelsus said, uh, everything is a poison. Uh, There's nothing that's not a poison, but the poison is in the dose. Uh, Strychnine was very commonly used medicine in the 19th century, early 20th century. Um, It was an effective heart stimulant, cardiac stimulant. So, I mean, later in the 20th century, we developed better, less poisonous heart stimulants like uh, amphetamine and adrenaline. But they didn't have that back then. So they used strychnine. It worked well in the proper dose uh, as a heart stimulant. Um, and in 1886, uh, there's a doctor in Russia that uh, published an experiment that he had done. He had taken uh, several alcoholics who were actively drinking and given them injections of strychnine. And after three days of injections, they stopped drinking. They were repulsed by alcohol. They couldn't touch it. Um, so it's it's probably the first... Well, no, it's not the first. It's one of the first forms of aversion therapy for alcohol. And... Uh, This paper got published in every English language journal. Well, I mean, lots of English language medical journals. Uh, The only one of the only journals that didn't publish it was uh, the Quarterly Journal of Inebriety, which was the only specialty publication on addiction and alcoholism of the era. Mm -hmm. And they said, oh, we believe in asylum treatment. We don't believe in in drug treatment, in uh, medicine, in pharmaceutical treatment, so we're going to ignore this. Mm-hmm. Um, and this, these were the powers that be in addiction treatment in the United States at the time in the 1880s, and they said it's
2: still going on today. The difference between drug-free and medication-based uh, treatment. You know, the wheel just keeps turning.
1: (laughs) And uh, just to jump ahead a little bit, in Switzerland, where methadone is free and where you can dose in the doctor's office or the drugstore, overdose death rates have decreased 80 Mm -hmm. percent in the United States, where everybody thinks that you need to go to a 12 step meeting to be cured or you methadone is practically inaccessible. People are getting charged like $400 a month for a drug that costs like $20 a month because <laughs> like they are means- only allowed yeah. to take it at clinics. And the clinics can be 100 miles away and they have to pay more for the methadone than their rent. And then they get told... Well, if you could afford to buy heroin, you can afford to pay for the methadone. The whole purpose of methadone, one of the whole purposes, was to decrease crime, so okay. you wouldn't have to steal to right. buy the heroin. You yeah. goddamn profiteering to be to assholes! <laughs> yeah, yeah, these profiteering assholes. That I hope I can swear on this podcast. No, feel free. That's
2: fine, especially when you're talking about profiteering. It's fine. <laughs>
1: The guys that run these methadone clinics, uh, there are some good ones. There are some decent ones. Uh, there's quite a few nonprofit profit ones in New York City. Uh, but the, these for-profit methadone clinics are just horrible. And, you know, people are degraded and they have to go to these counseling sessions. And what do they do in the counseling sessions? They degrade you. They degrade you every way possible in a methadone clinic. They do everything possible to make you stop coming. Mm. No wonder our overdose death rates have increased tenfold. We're doing everything exactly 100% wrong. (laughs) This answer is already there. It's not just Switzerland. Uh, Norway had the same results. At least seven countries, which I wrote about on the HAMS website, uh, at least seven countries have had long-term great decreases in overdose deaths. And they all did the same thing. They made methadone free and completely easily accessible. Right. And right. there's about half a dozen more countries that had a shorter term success. Uh, for long term, I looked at at least 20 years for shorter term, like 10 years or so. Mm-hmm. Um, but they all do the same thing. And none of them do 12 step programs. Nobody does 12 step programs outside of the United States, Canada and Great Britain. And hmm. they're not that popular in Britain or even Canada. It's mostly the United States where everybody says, "Wow, faith healing—that's what hmm. you need to cure that's addiction." So yes, surrender to God.
2: Uh, <laughs> See, what I don't understand is why you're not passionate about this, Ken. <laughs> no, I love it. I love. I love the. I love the, the passion and the. Um, and the real the real commitment to this field that you bring it's uh it's it's really remarkable and you come into it with I appreciate a very um, historically minded um, perspective where you understand that what we're dealing with right now did not come you know out of nothing it's very much so the product of hundreds of years of creation at this point. I mean, not hundreds, right? We were talking about like late 19th century, but we're talking about at least a century and a half of um, the, you know, the continual building of ideas, right? Yeah. Pretty wild stuff. (laughs) Well, so actually that's a question I want to ask you, right? When I was, when I was reading through uh, Strychnite and Gold and I really like. I would. I think anyone who is familiar with William White's Slaying the Dragon will really appreciate Strychnine and Gold. I kind of see them as like companion volumes because just like the massive wealth of information is just really, really valuable. But um, it's you, you. it makes it very clear that addiction treatment has long been a very tricky area, right? Because it's straddling the line between a medical practice for doctors to take care of and a business opportunity for people to capitalize on. So if you could tell us a bit about what you learned about treatment as a commercial commodity in the 19th century and into, and into the 20th and Hey, if you have any comments on it today, go for it.
1: (laughs) Okay. um, Well, Back to where we were in 1886, uh, the professionals did not want to give medication. They did not want to give medication-assisted treatment, to use the modern term. They did not want to use any type of medication to treat addiction with. They thought asylum treatment, put them in asylums, give them people a trade, have them work, and to give them religion. And if you lock them up for at least a year, um, they will be cured. Well, T.D. Crothers, Thomas Davison Crothers, was the de facto head of the inebriate asylum movement, Um, and he said uh, people should be locked up one to two years uh, to try and cure them, and if they relapsed after they were released, they should be locked up for life to keep society safe. From drunkards and to keep them safe from themselves, so he wanted life imprisonment in an asylum. Uh, of course, this never succeeded. Um, this the asylum movement did not have a lot of success. Most states said, uh, "We're not going to lock up people for a year just because they like to get drunk. This is crazy." Um, so it was. There were not a great number of. Uh, inebriate asylums built and the ones that were built did not last a long time. This is volume two of the series. Now you have volume one, which was published in two parts because it was too big to. uh,
2: Oh yeah. Each, each section is 450 pages. You wrote a 900 page book. That's extraordinary.
1: Yeah. So it was too big to bind in one. But uh, yeah, volume one is the, the proprietary cure Institute's, the ones that had the secret cures in charge money for them, volume two, which um just finishing up is the inebriate asylums and inebriate farms and uh, going up to the narcotics farms in Lexington and Fort Worth. Oh, sure. W-
2: well, tell us more about these these cures that they were selling. There's some pretty like wacky stuff that um is being sold into the guise of treatment, right?
1: Um Okay, I'm not sure where we got to there. I'm going to go back to where I was. Um, So the the asylum people did not like this idea at all. Oh, uh, one more guy we have to talk about is uh, Charles B. Towns, uh, who opened the Towns Hospital and who was very uh, influential in getting the Boylan anti-narcotic law going in New York State. He was a total pusher for Prohibition, but he ran a treatment hospital And he published, uh, one of the things he published, he said, uh, anyone that relapses after addiction treatment, he was doing addiction treatment for opiates, said anyone that relapses after taking uh, my treatment should be sent to a death camp. He advocated setting up death camps for addicts who relapsed and just exterminate them wholesale. Oh, that's a <laughs> super idea! My <Thank> God, <laughs> she's. Yeah, well, it did not catch on, uh, obviously.
2: Yeah, probably a probably a benefit. <laughs> yeah, probably a good thing.
1: So, 1886, uh, the addiction treatment professionals see the strychnine cure get published and say, "We don't like it. We're not going to do it. It's n- we want asylums." Um. So, uh. A, number of doctors tried it out, and they found it was successful. Uh, a number of other doctors tried it in Russia. One doctor treated at least 500 patients uh, with this in Russia. Um, mm. And it was very, I mean, it's very successful in getting people to stop drinking. It makes them averse. They can't stand alcohol after day three of the injections. So it's it's an effective aversion treatment. Um, so, there's a doctor named Leslie Keeley, uh, who's a railroad surgeon uh, living in Dwight, Illinois, one of these little fly speck towns out on the prairie. And he hears about the strychnine cure. Now, Keeley had started selling a liquor cure through the mail order in 1880. And it wasn't too successful. And he'd actually shut the business down when he read this article about the strychnine cure and he said well i'm just going to try this out and see if it works he tried it out it worked he said oh wait a minute i got a good money maker here Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i'm going to call it the gold cure because i'm not going to tell, tell people it's a strychnine cure that's what he called his original cure was the gold cure so he just kept the name said and it is the magical secret powers of gold that gives the cure but there was no gold in the cure, it was strychnine, <laughs> probably strychnine and atropine. We have pretty good evidence of that, but mm. it was effective at getting people stopped. Um, so he started, you know, in his office, he started giving the strychnine injections. So more and more people started coming by 1890. Um, there were close to a thousand people a day coming to Dwight, Illinois to take the Keeley cure the keely's you know how much about they
2: were paying for for the keely cure how much was how much was raking in off of this
1: it was uh 25 per week for the treatment and it was the treatment uh initially was three weeks and about 25 dollars for three weeks worth of board so it was initially about a hundred dollars mm-hmm. for the full course of treatment for 21 days uh, later, he extended it to four weeks, twenty-eight days. Guess who invented twenty-eight days? It was Keeley in eighteen nineties.
2: That's extraordinary. That's amazing. That's a decent amount of money at that
1: time. And that was a good, yeah, chunk of change. That was a couple months' wages. So, uh, yeah, it's not, it was not a cheap cure.
2: Yeah, but uh, a financial commitment to going to Keeley.
1: Yeah, definitely. Well. Basically, nobody was giving out free treatment at the time. Uh, There was no health insurance in the 1890s. Mm -hmm. Um, Everything was paid out of pocket. Everything was direct from the patient to the doctor. No middlemen. In fact, the American Medical Association fought against against medical insurance. They fought tooth and nail to prevent Mm -hmm. any form of medical insurance from ever being established. They hated it. They said, Every doctor should get paid directly from the patient. There should be no middlemen.
2: Because, yeah. You know, and, and for people who can't afford it, well, tough cookies, right? Too bad. They don't need help. They don't need help. Doctors right? were supposed
1: to dedicate some a part of their time to treat the poor. Um, not all of them did. Some of them never did. Um, if you look in Boston, there's a history of this. Some, some, quite a few good doctors did um dedicate some of their time because you would kind of get ostracized from good society particularly in the east if you were that greedy mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. and if you were rich in boston and you didn't contribute to charity you would be ostracized mm-hmm. um it's kind of different in the midwest where the nouveau riche ruled uh Doctors were much more likely to say, "Oh, they're poor. Let them die." Uh, (laughs) I don't owe anybody any charity, Um, but that was the system before insurance came about, and that wasn't until like the nineteen
2: thirties. Yeah, right. Coming out of Texas,
1: of all places,
2: Texas, which brought us health (laughs) insurance. It's so strange. Um, Well, so this is this is something we were talking about a little bit before we started recording. But I mean, what you're kind of getting at is that it took a long time for medicine to become scientific, right? Like, here's Keeley promoting a cure for uh, alcoholism that he mislabels, doesn't tell people what's in it, uh, charges them an arm and a leg for. And that's pretty much the only thing that's available, right? There's no other options. Why did it take so long for medicine, specifically addiction medicine to become scientific?
1: Well, uh, your other option was an inebriate asylum or a private sanitarium, but they also charged an arm and a leg. Um, Keeley didn't charge a tremendous amount. Some of his competitors undercut him. I think there were some that were low, as low as $60 for the whole month. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are all documented in the book. Uh, getting back to medicine becoming scientific, Um, I mean, it depends on what aspect of medicine we're talking about, but the important part here is pharmacology and therapeutics. Mm -hmm. Do you test, when you test to see if something is effective or not effective? Um, And the general history of medicine that we get taught, or what I got taught in school many years ago, what you see on Wikipedia, which is a terrible source, for history of medicine, is uh, the allopaths, the orthodox doctors, were the guys in the white hats. They were the good guys. Everybody else was a charlatan and a quack. And it's totally false. Mm -hmm. Um, So in the 19th century, we had alternative thoughts, uh, alternative schools of thought spring up other than Mm -hmm. allopathy. Because the allopaths, the orthodox doctors, they were in love with mercury. They gave everyone big doses of mercury. They said, Mm -hmm. mercury is a cure all. Mm -hmm. And their second favorite treatment was bloodletting. Uh, Drain (laughs) out about half their blood. That'll cure them. So, uh, they really were pushing some extremely harmful, uh, therapeutic cures in pharmaceuticals, basically mercury and bloodletting or really bad. And, uh, This guy named Hahnemann in Germany popped up and said, this is really bad. We need something different. So he invented homeopathy. Mm -hmm. Homeopathy used much smaller doses than allopathy. And you find in the 19th century, some of the smartest people, I think uh, Mark Twain, Oliver Wendell Holmes, a few of them embraced homeopathy because they looked and said, yeah, you guys are killing a lot less people than the (laughs) Orthodox doctors are.
2: (laughs) I'm going to go play on that team.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and we had other schools of thought spring up. There was the eclecticism, which uh, said, uh, all mineral based drugs are bad. Giving people mercury is bad. Um, so we should stick with plant based drugs. Mm-hmm. And physio said the same thing. They were basically very similar to each other. Um, and of course, what did orthodox medicine say about the eclectics? They said, they're all quacks and charlatans. They're just trying to take people's money and fool the gullible. What people yeah. need to cure them is mercury. Uh, <laughs> so, no, it was one of these four schools of medicine any better than any of the others? It's not likely. They all had their good points and bad points. None of them yeah. were scientific. They were all based on dogma, mm-hmm. a received tradition, Observation, anecdotal evidence, not scientific testing. Mm -hmm. There was uh, very few statistical studies done in the 19th century. There were a handful of good statistical studies, but doctors hated statistics during that era. And not until 1940 did we get the first randomized controlled trial. Mm -hmm. And that's when we first started really being able to evaluate if medicines were helpful or harmful Now, in the 1890s, you could tell that some things were good because Mm -hmm. they had dramatic effects. Opium and morphine were obviously good painkillers. You give Mm -hmm. people opium or morphine, the pain goes away immediately. When you have dramatic effects like that, you don't really need a randomized controlled trial. (laughs) It's the same with the strychnine. After three days of injections, everybody stopped drinking. They couldn't touch whiskey anymore. Yeah. You could tell that was effective because it was so dramatic. Mm -hmm. Mercury was uh, dramatic. It made people shit really good. And they thought that was essential to get people's bowels cleaned out. Uh, That turned out to be totally false. And Mercury had no therapeutic value, but it was good for making people shit. Um, Which is why the Alipaz thought it was wonderful. Um, So... (laughs) Keeley, as I said, started selling his cure. He, he started up his institute. And it was not a sanitarium the way we think of it today. Because people just came to the institute four times a day to get their shots. Mm-hmm. And uh, they stayed at boarding houses or ho- hotels outside. He didn't build any facility for them to stay at. Mm-hmm. And this was true of all the Keeley institutes open throughout the country. And uh, there were about 127 Keeley Institutes in operation throughout the world. And about 100, I think about 111 of them were in the United States. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it grew gigantically. Um, Over the
2: period of how many years? How rapid was this growth?
1: Really rapid. Mm -hmm. Uh, The the number peaked about uh, 1894, 93 or 94. Um, there was a huge economic downturn known as the Panic of 1893 that started in 1893. And actually a lot of these small Keeley Institutes in these fly-spec towns uh, wound up consolidating in big cities. Because mm-hmm. Keeley said the best way, the best place to have the treatment institute is in a small town, uh, especially a dry small town where liquor is not sold But small town is good. Big city is bad. Um, So he tried to keep them out of the big cities. But after the economic panic hit, they wound up consolidating in the big cities. So there were a lot fewer institutes, but they were larger, treating more patients. Um, It's impossible to track the number treated per year, so we can't tell how many were uh, we can't tell how many patients were treated during the depression years of the 1890s compared to the boom years uh, right at the beginning of the 1890s. Probably fewer, but they were still a lot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: Can you tell us a little bit more, real briefly, though, about strychnine treatment? Did it really work? And uh, and what happened to it?
1: Well, empirically, we know it worked. Um, I mean. It was studied by lots of regular doctors, lots of allopaths. tested it, and they published their papers in medical journals, and it was over and over again the same thing. After three days of shots, the people could not drink liquor anymore. I mean, your question, of course, is how effective was it in the long term? Precisely. Did it result in permanent cures? Right. Well, for a lot of people, well, first of all, we have to remember the people taking Achille Cure were all, they had a great deal of recovery capital. They had jobs, they had money, they had mm-hmm. families um, because otherwise you couldn't afford it. They did give out some charity cures, we'll get to that later, but only to select few people. The deserving poor, not mm-hmm. the undeserving poor, the undeserving poor were not treated, but the The lawyer who had fallen on hard times might get a charity treatment or businessman who'd fallen on hard times, but you know, it had to be of your own social class, not, not the, uh, the undeserving poor as uh, Mm -hmm. they were called. So, but there weren't that many charity treatments, but I mean, these people have a lot of recovery capital. If they got jump started into abstinence for a good period, they had a good chance of being, of staying permanently abstinent, Mm -hmm. you know, so the population that was treated was uh, selected um, through circumstances to be the ones most likely to succeed. Right. Um, and they also formed Keeley Leagues. Now, Keeley did not start the Keeley Leagues. Uh, several of his patients one day got together and said, let's form a club to help support each other in not drinking. Mm-hmm. So they went to the well... And they pumped up a uh, cup of water and passed it around, said, we're all forming the Keeley Club. The Keeley Clubs got quite large. There were over 30,000 members at one point. And they offered support to each other to continue to abstain. And they were the ones that raised the money to give the charity treatments that I spoke of earlier. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that was their main purpose, to spread the word of the Keeley Institute um, to help people that couldn't afford to take the treatment get treated and, you know, just support each other. So those were useful adjuncts to the initial aversion. I mean, aversion therapies can be overcome um, if you work really hard. If you're determined to overcome an aversion, you can do it. Um, which actually is bringing us to the next part of the discussion and your other question, what happened to the strychnine cure? Mm -hmm. Um, Well, there's another way to produce an aversion uh, to something, Mm -hmm. Um, particularly if it's a food or a beverage. There is something called conditioned taste aversion, Mm -hmm. which has been very well studied uh, by this time. Um, we found, uh, John Garcia was one of the initial researchers uh, starting in the 1950s who, uh, discovered, uh, conditioning the kind, okay, the stimulus that did good conditioning depended on the response you wanted. Mm-hmm. So if it was for food or drink, if you wanted to condition mice, rats not to eat or drink something uh, you know put uh, any medic in them that will make them throw up when they eat it and if people eat something and throw up immediately afterwards they won't touch that food again for mm-hmm. a long time they be, become aversely conditioned to it he also found out if you want to uh, uh, make mice or rats avoid a certain place the effective way to do it was with electric shocks. Mm-hmm. So, uh, shocks convert, uh, Shocks are good for conditioning about movement or place, location. Um, emetics throwing up is very good for conditioning against foods or beverages. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is thoroughly demonstrated from the 1950s. and has been researched ever since up to the present day. There's still people doing research on conditioned taste aversion. Um, it's very well established. It kind of screwed up the traditional behaviorists who said uh, any stimulus could be paired with any response equally well. The mind is a black box. is not true at all. <laughs> um, yeah, we have a built-in survival mechanism. Yeah, if you eat something in the wilderness that makes you sick, you are conditioned to avoid that in the future so right. that you don't die from poisoning.
2: Exactly. Anyone who's had food poisoning uh, knows exactly what you're talking about.
1: Yeah, so they started doing that with uh, liquor. Uh, Frank Gatlin, uh, who was a wholesale druggist in Kansas, uh, started the first large scale uh, version conditioning treatment with Emetics uh, in 1902 in Denver, Colorado. Um, He had his wholesale business in Kansas, but he opened uh, the, uh, the Treatment Institute in Denver and he hired it out. Some he had some people managing it for him, and they started uh, pairing emetics with alcohol, so people would drink and immediately throw up, mm-hmm. and that created an aversion. So he could do that in three days. Mm-hmm. Uh, Keeley treatment took 28 days, uh, so the Gatlin treatment was much cheaper and quicker, and had the same effect. So the Keeley treatment started getting competition from Gatlin. But uh, the people that Gatlin put in charge of running the business weren't totally that savvy about starting a big chain. It didn't. Gatlin institutes did not become huge. Mm -hmm. Um, In 1909, uh, the chief physician at the Gatlin Institute left. His name was Dr. Benjamin Neal. Mm-hmm. And he paired up with a banker named James Bruce from Iowa. And uh, they said, you know, th- these Gatlin institutes aren't being run. Well, they're not being run like good businesses. We can make a ton of money. If we get your capital from your banks and your business skill, and I'll bring the medical knowledge that I learned from the Gatlin institutes and we'll create Neil institutes.
2: <laughs> we'll combine yeah. our
1: courses. Yes. Yeah. Benjamin Neal wanted the Neil institutes and they did. And, The Neal Institutes got huge. There were about 80 of those in the US. Mm -hmm. They grew very rapidly. They started in 1909. Um, And then, about 1916, 1917, demand for treatment started to disappear. Mm -hmm. Um, It's very complicated. There's a whole bunch of factors. Uh, There were state prohibition laws. temperance movement was getting really going good mm-hmm. um, people were quitting drinking um, so and then World War One mm-hmm. led to rationing on alcohol there was the Lever Act which made it illegal to distill booze mm-hmm. in the Anti-German United States german
2: sentiment that brings down beer drinking what's that? <laughs> Um, World War I, I, the thing I always think about with World War One is that the, the strong anti-German sentiment actually decreased beer drinking. You know, there was actually sort of like a um, sort of social prohibition against uh, drinking something that had such strong German ties when you were fighting them in a war.
1: <laughs> okay. Yeah, I hadn't put that in, but that makes sense. Um, yeah, yeah, it's
2: fascinating. There's like a lot of anti-German, uh, don't drink beer, like advertisements and magazines and stuff like that. Support, be, be patriotic. Don't, don't drink beer. Yeah, <laughs> I think
1: I've seen those, but I didn't get those in the in the book. So, but the, uh, well, the, the one... in the
2: rest of the 450 pages, you covered everything. So don't worry about
1: that. <laughs> well, we had the Lever Food and Fuel Act, which made it illegal to distill alcohol in the United mm-hmm. States. So uh, yeah, so it's you,
2: being cut cut back at all these at all of these different places. You know, socially, politically, of course, you're coming up on the passage of the Eighteenth Amendment and then the Volstead Act. It's it's such yeah, an interesting time, right? The, whiskey the whiskey got
1: very expensive because it had to be either be imported or distilled before the act was passed in 1918. Mm-hmm. So the prices went way up. Sure. So people bought less. So treatment demand just really dropped to almost nothing. Before Prohibition was passed.
2: Right, right.
1: It was actually at its low, treatment demand probably hit bottom about the day that Prohibition was passed. Mm-hmm. Immediately, was after, immediately after it was passed, uh, treatment demand started rising again. <laughs> and by about 1925, it, it was up very high again. Um, but uh, about 1920, it was at its bottom There was the lowest demand for treatment. And a lot of these institutes just shut down. Uh
0: Uh-huh.
1: Uh-huh. A few of the Keeley Institutes survived. The parent institutes survived until 1966. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm-hmm. Apparently in the 1940s, they stopped doing strychnine and uh, converted over to a conditioned taste aversion. Mm Mm-hmm treatment and then after a couple years they went to 12-step so
2: so total uh kind of uh just got rid of all got rid of the medication totally that's fascinating um and it lasted until you said 66 and then 1966 and then shut as well. okay
1: yeah there wow. were too many um there were too many uh government-supported city-supported state-supported treatment programs they couldn't make any money off of it anymore right
0: right, right, the
1: for-profit one was not they were going to start losing money so they said we're going to shut down because the city and the state is are giving free or cheap resources that we can't compete with
2: right right so we don't have too much time left i want to ask you um kind of one one quick question you know who do you want this book project to speak
1: to who is your audience here Um, my primary audience was myself. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. I mean, I started asking this question, well, many years ago, I started asking, how did we get such a rotten, awful treatment system for addiction in the United States? Why is it so bad? Why is it so horrible? Why is everything 12 step? Why aren't any of these competing ideas available? What happened? And I was uh, in a PhD program at one point, which I didn't finish. Um, but I got an assignment. Write um, it, it was. We were looking at systems theory, and so write a systems theory paper about addiction treatment. And I said, "Okay, I'm going to look at the economics because it's got to be capitalism that made everything rotten," because. <laughs> Capitalism has a way of doing that, mm-hmm. um, when, especially when it's uncontrolled capitalism. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started looking at the history. And I mean, I read Bill's book a long time ago. I had mm-hmm. Bill on my podcast. Uh, I actually had him on twice because he's got a big, long book, too. It yeah. took two episodes to cover all of uh, Slaying the Dragon, which. <laughs> It's a great book. It's a great standard book. He doesn't oh, yeah. Oh,
0: yeah. he doesn't
1: have much space to go into the Keeley Institute. He's only got a couple pages on it. So mm-hmm. that was something that was wide open to look at some more. And yeah, pretty much I found out uh, eventually it's capitalism that is responsible for every hospital incorporating twelve step treatment because it made no sense that hospitals would institute twelve step treatment programs. There was no evidence behind them. There was nothing published in scientific journals. Doctors in the 1970s did not give you treatments that were not evidence-based. They had to have been studied in scientific journals. Doctors didn't just say, oh, you have cancer. I'm going to send you to a faith healer because I think faith healing is good. (laughs) No, you would get your license revoked for that. So... I mean it's not doctors that brought twelve step programs into hospitals.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Doctors just threw up their hands and said, well, we don't have any treatment. Um so, they're
2: offering this, so why not? Right. Right. Well what
1: happened, uh Comprehensive Care Corporation, Comp Care Corporation, uh was the one responsible. We have to look at the background. Uh mm. I think they got started in sixty nine or maybe it was 70, uh, that's about the time that they did their first thing that I'm going to describe right now. Um, so, uh, about 1969, hospitals in the United States were severely overbuilt. Mm-hmm. Um, there were no restrictions on hospital buildings, and every hospital had about 50% of its beds empty. Mm. And they were all losing money. They were losing money because they couldn't fill up their beds with patients. Right. Right. Uh, And by 1969, a huge number of insurance companies were offering uh, insurance payment for alcoholism treatment given in a hospital. But no hospitals were giving it. Mm -hmm. So there was this huge pool of money, this huge pool of empty beds. And uh, we have a man. His name was B. Lee Carnes, KARNS. Um, and he had been the chief accountant, the chief accountant for caterpillar tractors in Peoria, Illinois, in the 1950s. And in the late '60s, he started a medical consulting business to help people cut costs. And he got hired to take over CompCare Corporation, which was a little chain of three hospitals that was about to go bankrupt. Mm -hmm. And he said, I've got a great idea. There's all this money for alcoholism treatment. There's all these empty beds in all these hospitals throughout the country. I'm going to create a program where I supply the personnel to do the treatment, They supply the beds. The hospitals supply the bed. We split the profits
0: Mm 50-50.
1: And everybody said, oh, that's a great idea. Let's try that out and see if it works. And it's like, what kind of treatment are you going to use? Well, we've got two options. We could use aversion therapy, uh, which is really expensive and requires a doctor to supervise it. Or we could use a 12-step program, which is really cheap, and we can hire high school dropouts to be counselors uh, we'll go with that one. That one's cheap.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. So he sent his counselors in to do the treatment. Uh, the The hospital split the money with him. The first one worked out really good. He said, okay, let's do another. Let's mm-hmm. do another. Pretty soon he's got like 300 hospitals in the U.S. contracting with him to do the treatment. And he's making uh, millions and millions. I forgot the exact number. CompCare got huge, gigantic. What year is the when is the uh, 1970s? 1970s. Ah, the 70s.
2: I love the 70s. Yeah, that's when it's all 70.
1: the hospitals got 12-step treatment programs Incredible. in them from CompCare cool. Corporation, Corporation. Comcare and Corporation. the contracts were for three years. And when the contracts ran out, uh, the hospital said. Well, we've seen how this works. We can do this ourselves. Mm-hmm. We can hire really, these uh, high school dropout counselors to do the treatment. We don't need him. We can cut him out.
0: Mm-hmm. So,
1: mm-hmm. cop got cut out. Um, they went from this huge profit to huge bankruptcy, but the damage was done. 12-step yeah. had become standard in U.S. hospitals everywhere.
2: And are you going to be writing about this in future volumes of, of this work? Are you continuing strychnine Nine and Gold, or is it going to transform into something new? What's your next step?
1: Uh, there will be more volumes. Strict Nine mm-hmm. and Gold is the title of Volume One. Volume Two, I think, is going to be titled "From Inebriate Asylums to Narcotic Farms."
2: Uh huh. I'm excited about the narcotic farm material. I love. I uh, I think fa- Lexington and Fort Worth are so beyond fascinating.
1: They're they're interesting. There's a lot that's been written about those, so I'm not gonna be able to contribute an a huge amount of new material mm-hmm. on that's those. Uh some of the inebriate asylums, uh there's been very little written about the one in Kings County, for example, mm-hmm. in uh Brooklyn. Uh to Brooklyn of today. Uh mm-hmm. King's County of the, of then. Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, well, that sounds remarkable and When they come out, I can't wait to have you back on New Books Network here to talk more about it. But uh, for now, it seems like we're probably out of time. I want to thank you for giving us this amazing uh, journey through early uh, addiction treatment in the United States. This has been an absolute education, and I am so grateful for it. Thank you.
1: Okay, thanks for having me here.